All right, if you would please stand for the reading of our scripture. From the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over the flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. All right, well, good morning again. We are celebrating the second week of Advent and the second week of our series called It Will Be, as you're getting familiar with this graphic. Each week we are uh, looking at a particular phrase of the doxology, the Amen of the Lord's Prayer, which we looked at in detail this fall. I believe it was in detail. Did you feel like it was a little short? No. No, we spent a fair amount of time on the Lord's Prayer, and so now we get to spend a a fair amount of time on that last sentence of the Lord's Prayer, the doxology. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. The idea is that we are taking a look at each of those phrases of the doxology of the Lord's Prayer as it relates to Christmas, as it relates to the surprise of Christmas, the shock of Christmas. We often come to Christmas, and the stories are very familiar We're very comfortable with the scriptures. We might know these scriptures better than any other part of our Bible. And so, in a sense, they become familiar, used to us, well-worn. But what we want to do as we look at it through the doxology of the Lord's Prayer is to see how shocking, how radical it is that we have Christmas. We see that God brought his kingdom last week through Jesus' lowliness, the shock of the great king coming in lowliness. Today we are going to reflect on how God's power comes to us through Jesus' weakness, through weakness. The reason that we have focused on the image of the manger in this series is to try and focus on that paradox. God's kingdom, power, and glory come through One born in a manger. He surprises us. He shocks us. The manger reminds us that God's ways are so different from our ways. Indeed, as we look at the manger story today, we are going to see three master strokes 
that bring God's power to us through Jesus' weakness. Weakness is not one of our cherished words. I had a conversation with a gentleman the other day who was fixing my air conditioner because you still need an air conditioner down here in December. But anyways, while he was working up uh, a uh, handsome bill for his Christmas presents, uh, he was sharing with me his story that uh, his wife had passed away from cancer a few years ago. And it was a very sad and sorry story to hear he was still bearing the grief and the loss of it. And I felt very sorry for him. But it was interesting as he was talking about one of the concerns that he was fixated on was this phrase that he would hear from time to time about losing the fight to cancer. And then, in fact, made him very angry. That, that, that the idea that the end of life is a loss, that cancer wins. He had a, a deep rejection of the word lose or lost. And I think in that respect, he speaks for all of us. There is a fear in the word lose. Lose is to, is to come up short. It's to not have enough. It's to be weak. It's to be powerless. Indeed, just a, a couple of months ago, our president described a recent terrorist attack, and he, he said of the terrorists the worst word that he could think of. He called them losers. And I think that reveals something about our value system. Losers represent the lowest. They represent the worst for many of us. And that is because we live in a world that loves winners. Winning is valued because that is the way of power. You win contests, you win contracts, you win clients, you win promotions, you win elections, you win friends. Each of these describe are, are desirable to us because they give us more power. And more power is more security and more control. And yet, at the center of the gospel is a manger. A symbol of utter weakness and powerlessness. The manger calls us to examine ourselves for worldliness and worldly thinking. Is our drive for power and strength coming from our trust in the gospel or the lack of it? When I was at my old church, I developed a very close friendship with a woman who struggled with mental illness, struggled mightily with depression. And for the most part, that depression laid upon her a sense of, of outsideness, of disqualification, of uselessness, because she would see everybody else in the world who did not have that condition having it so much easier, having success come to her more natural, them more naturally, finding her missing out on these things because of the wear of that condition. And she was a very dear friend to me. And she shared with me all of these struggles 
And she shared with me as, as best as she could the explanation of how mental illness, how depression affected her. And one of the beautiful things that I saw from this woman was how she used her weakness to understand other people, to love other people, to be vulnerable. I believe my friend shows us what the meaning of Christmas is when we think about the manger. Because the manger is good news not to the powerful, but to those who are weak. As we have seen in the Lord's Prayer, our condition is that of a beggar, of a debtor, of fodder for all sorts of evil. Why? Because we are weak. We are mere humans in a world whose power is fleeting and oh so corrupting. Are you aware of the fragility of your strength? Are you aware that you are running out of moves? You are running out of maneuvers. You are running out of ways to put a spin on your weakness. Perhaps you are coming here today confronted with your weakness. You're dealing with the weakness of of health, the weakness of family, the weakness of employment or friendship. Perhaps you are bearing the weakness of temptation, even the weakness of moral failing. Today is encouragement for you. Because the gospel has come to those who know their weakness. And he has come to redeem us out of weakness. Today we are going to see that because God sent his son to be born and lain in a manger, our hopes are made certain. As we look at the manger, we will come away with new confidence that it will be. That that doxology, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever, amen, will be so. Let us now look at our passage as we see the three master strokes that bring God's power through Jesus' weakness. First, we notice that the, the, the very first of these master strokes is it is, in, it is in Jesus' weakness that God identifies with us. That God identifies with us. We see again focusing on the words, they laid him in a manger. How is it through Jesus' weakness that God identifies with us? Well, there are three particular ways that 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 comes out. First, most obviously, he takes upon himself our humanity. This is Jesus, the Son of God, who we are speaking of when it says that they wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger. Those words are mind-boggling. The Son of God wrapped in swaddling clothes and laid in a manger. This is God's Son coming incarnate. Not incarnate as Superman. Incarnate as a baby that needs swaddling clothes or he would become cold that needs a manger to rest in. And we need to speak about the manger because the manger was no crib. It was, a, it was a feeding trough. He was not laid in a beautiful, immaculate, pottery barn crib. He was laid in a feeding trough that smelled 
of all the smells that animals make, and that had caked on it all the leftover foods and morsels that fall from an animal's mouth. It was an unsanitary, unpleasant, unbeautiful place. And our Savior took on the fragileness of being a baby and was laid helplessly, dependently, in a manger. How mind-boggling is that? Though Jesus, though, though the Son of God, was always fully God, he takes on a human nature, and he lives within the limitations of our humanity without losing his deity. The idea of the incarnation is so hard to explain, but he is fully God and fully man. Two natures in one person. Never in that manger was, was the Son ever less than fully God. And yet, in that manger, he was fully human. He was fully an infant. The idea of how this happens exceeds mental calculation. But there are a couple examples that perhaps help us think about it. One is how we play with our kids. How we play with our kids. We get down on the floor. We get down into their world. We get down into their thoughts, down into their toys. We, for a moment when we play with our kids, go to the level of a, of a two-year-old or a three-year-old or a, or a five-year-old. We, we play with superhero toys. We play video games. It doesn't mean that at any moment our mind and our, our nature is anything less than fully grown an adult. But we put those, in a sense, aside and become fully present with our child, playing like a child. So in this sense, we can say that Jesus, that, that God became Jesus, that he took upon the limitations of a child so that he could be fully present with us. It would be like uh, in the movie A Princess Bride, the, the great sword fight. You discover in the middle of the sword fight that, that one guy says, well, I have to confess something to you. I'm not actually left-handed. And he switches hands and they fight some more. And it's about over. He's about beat, beat uh, the hero. And then the hero, after, after several minutes of fighting, says, well, I have to confess something to you too. I'm not left-handed either. And he switches to the right hand and he wins. The incarnation is essentially God playing left-handed. And I mean, that's... that's, that's Almost silly to say that, but God takes on the left-handedness to the nth degree to become one with us, to be present with us. This is amazing. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 43, we are told what it means to receive the resurrection body, but Paul says that our earthly body is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. That is our hope, that we have been sown in weakness to be raised in power. But here's what the incarnation says. The one who is in power was sown in weakness for us. So he takes on our humanity, but also he enters into our history. The fascinating thing about the Gospel of Luke 
is that he makes sure that we understand again and again that he is not giving us a storybook myth. He is giving us history. Look at verse 1 where it tells us that this happened in those days of Caesar Augustus when Quirinius was the governor of Syria. These are are real historical figures, and, and the story of the gospel comes right into our history. The message of Christmas is not storybook, but fact. When we look at other religions, when we look at Buddhism or Hinduism, what do they bring into the world? They bring proverbs and aphorisms and ways to live. But there's no flesh in that. There's no skin in that. Our gospel, our truth, is that our Savior came in skin, came in flesh and blood. He came into our history. You can look at his story next to worldly events. He came to us. He is a part of history. And that makes what the gospel is real. Not imagined, not hoped, real. Something that we must wrestle with and contend. Because if a Savior comes into our history, then we have to deal with who that Savior is. It matters little how, much, how, how well you know the book of Huckleberry Finn. It matters a great deal what you know and understand of Jesus. Because when he comes into history, he becomes a figure that we must settle in our minds. So he takes on our humanity, he enters our history, but in addition to all of that, he shares our powerlessness. He shares our powerlessness. I think about when I had my first child and rocking that baby wrapped in warm clothes and how helpless that was, but how universal that experience was, having that baby lay on my chest, I was experiencing what the vast majority of, of, uh, of us have experienced, holding a baby, a newborn infant. And I thought, my goodness, right now I'm just like Adam, who held his baby Seth and Cain and Abel. I'm just like Abraham, who held Isaac. I'm just like Joseph, who held Jesus. Jesus came as a baby to experience the powerlessness of our humanity. This is a a fascinating quote that helps us, I think, think about what it means that Jesus dwelt among us from the theologian uh, McLeod. I can't remember his first name. He writes, he dwelt among us. This involved the most complete sharing of our experiences, accentuated by the fact that he chose not simply to be born, but to be born in a low condition, hence the manger, hence the flight to Egypt, hence Nazareth, hence the homelessness, hence the reputed lack of learning and scorn of the rulers, hence the notoriety gained through friendship, with publicans and sinners. He lived his incarnate life experiencing pain, poverty, and temptation, 
witnessing squalor and brutality, hearing obscenities and profanities and the hopeless cry of the oppressed. He lived not in sublime detachment, but with us as the fellow man of all men, crowded, busy, stressed, and molested. No large estate gave him space. No financial capital guaranteed his daily bread. No personal staff protected him from interruptions. And no power or influence protected him from injustice. He saved us from alongside us. The story of Jesus coming to identify with us, is that he shares in our powerlessness. Our God helps us in weakness because he knows and has experienced our weakness. So he fully identifies with us. That is the first master stroke of Jesus' weakness. The second, it is in Jesus' weakness that God fulfills our righteousness. Keen into to what is said to the shepherds when They are out tending their flocks at the nighttime. An angel interrupts their pastoral existence. And what what is their experience when they see this angel who turns the dark into light as the glory shines all around them? These shepherds go into instant terror because this angel is a mighty angel a powerful angel, a fearsome angel, an angel that you would say, if that were on my side, I could conquer the world. This angel was magnificent and filled them with great fear. But here's the great irony of this passage in Luke. Our Savior does not come as a mighty angel, but as a helpless baby. Our Savior is not wrapped in the splendor, taking the night sky and making it bright with glory. He is wrapped with swaddling clothes. Why? Why isn't it the angel that saves us? Why isn't it the power of the angel that gives us our salvation? Would not that be a great Savior? The reason that our salvation does not come by angels, does not come by rulers, does not come by political leaders, is because our salvation is not from something outside of us. It is from something inside. It is our sin nature. In the book of Genesis, after the flood, after God wiped out all of the depraved man, men, and all he had was no one his family, he still looked at our condition and in Genesis 8.21 said that we are inclined to evil from our youth. Something inside of us is bent towards disobedience, bent towards evil, bent towards selfishness, bent towards self-indulgence. I can tell you, as a father, I have not had to teach my kids to sin. They are able to do it quite naturally. They learned to lie. They learned to defy. They learned to sneak and hide. In fact, I I should say otherwise. They didn't learn that at all. They did that. The learning has been to teach them not to do those things. We recognize with the incarnation 
that our salvation requires someone to come who can save us from what uh, afflicts us on the inside. We are fallen. We are broken. We are bent towards our own selfish ends. We are bent towards sin. I, I know from holding children that if they could, they would strangle you. And the only reason that that doesn't happen amongst us is because we have chastised ourselves from giving in to our desires. But I know if, if people could do what they wanted to, I'd probably have been choked to death 50 times by now. Maybe just since I've gotten here. I don't know. You guys agree too much with that statement. <laughs> but there is something in us that, that leads us to sin. And so we needed a Savior like us to fulfill our righteousness. What has been lost in the fall is our ability and our desire to do what is good. In fact, we are now born bent away from the good. And so what is needing saved is humanity itself. And that is why we needed a Savior who came like us to fulfill our righteousness. Our Savior needed to be a sinless substitute. An angel could never save us from our grave condition of sin. And so what is sent to us in Jesus is a sinless substitute. The author of Hebrews tells us it was fitting that he, Jesus, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Later it says, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. And then in uh, chapter 2, verse 17, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. What we are told is that we needed a Savior who could redeem our humanity who could fulfill the righteousness that we have failed time and time again. The incarnation provides the only Savior that can save us. He was born fully human, yet without sin. That is why he was conceived by the Holy Spirit, so that he would be born holy, and yet completely and entirely human. Jesus then had to fulfill all righteousness for us, as one of us. He had to undo the fall by taking the sons of Adam and fulfilling the lawlessness, the, the, the righteousness that we had failed. The Lord's Prayer, I think, gives us an incredible description of what that requires. It tells us what sinlessness involves. It involves hallowing God's name perfectly, seeking His kingdom, doing His will, trusting in Him for all of our needs, fulfilling all righteousness, not just not committing sins, but doing all the, all the good that we can. Never succumbing to temptation. That is the righteousness that we've all failed. And yet that is the righteousness that is required, and that is the sinless righteousness that Christ performs for us. And when the shepherds are told this, note that the, that the angels say, this day... This day is when the salvation begins. How old is Jesus on the day when this was announced to the shepherds? He is hours old. This tells us something very remarkable. 
Often we shorten the gospel to just looking at the last days of Jesus, where he dies on the cross and raises from the dead. But the angels are telling us that the salvation of the Savior has begun at the birth of Jesus. It is beginning in his infancy that he performs the work of saving us. Jesus' work of salvation began at birth. It began by learning to obey perfectly his parents. So we need to note something very important here. Jesus fulfills our righteousness by his humanity, not by his godness. What I mean by that is that it is Jesus being human and living amongst us as a human that he fulfills righteousness. Often we flatten the gospel story and we say, well, the reason Jesus wasn't tempted or the reason that Jesus didn't sin is because he was God. And that's kind of true, but when you say that, you're respecting nothing at all about him being a real flesh and blood human. The Gospels are telling us that Jesus was not sinless, was not perfectly righteous because he was God. It is telling us that he was righteous because he was perfectly obedient as a human. His righteousness was fulfilled in his humanity. An example, maybe, that to help us understand what we are doing when we say, well, he was righteous just because he was God. Has anybody ever been to a Cirque du Soleil show? And a big acrobat show with these amazing acrobats who jump all over the place and, and uh, do incredible stunts. Now, they have safety nets and they have uh, safety harnesses that keep them from doing something, or from hurting themselves if they fail. And so you watch this show and you, you see how these, these people have trained their bodies to do all of these amazing stunts, and you just sit back amazed. And then you go out after the show is over, and you talk it over with your wife, and you say, that safety harness was incredible. Look how that safety harness just did it all. No, it was the acrobat. The acrobat trained himself and followed through all of his steps perfectly so that the show went off without a hitch. Well, that is, in, in, in a sense, what the incarnation means for Jesus' righteousness. His godness is the safety harness. But the righteousness that he performed was in his humanity. And so when he never sinned, when he never failed, when he never stumbled in obedience to God, it was done like the acrobat. It was almost as if the safety harness wasn't there. That is the righteousness that Jesus performed. He learned the law and obeyed the law. He submitted to the Holy Spirit and followed the Holy Spirit. And I think if you're looking for some kind of proof for what I'm saying, go to the Garden of Gethsemane. Go to where he is praying, where he is begging for God to give him strength, not to do his, will, not to do his own will, but, but the, the Lord's will, the Father's will, what does he say to Peter, who is there sleeping? He warns Peter that the spirit is strong, but the flesh is weak. Jesus is, is, all, is telling us his own personal struggle. He was experiencing his own weakness of flesh, his own pressure of temptation to recoil from the thought of giving his life as a ransom for many. He was performing 
his righteousness, his obedience in the weakness of our flesh, not in the omnipotence of his godness. So what does this mean for us? It means that Jesus' incarnation makes him able not only to stand in our place, but to sympathize with us wherever we are weak, and even more, to offer us the strength to walk in righteousness. Jesus' righteousness in the flesh shows us what power we have in the Holy Spirit, whom he has given to us. Jesus walked by the Spirit, and he gives us that same Spirit that we may walk in righteousness as well. This is why Paul can command Christians in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, to not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. The Spirit that God has given us, the Spirit that led Jesus Christ, is able to lead us out of sin and in righteousness. We can see it in the life of Jesus. Jesus was led in perfect righteousness and sinlessness his entire life because he obeyed the law and he submitted to the Spirit. So, number one, it is in Jesus' weakness that God identifies with us. Second, we see it is in Jesus' weakness that God fulfills our righteousness. Third, we see that it is in Jesus' weakness that God conquers the world. That God conquers the world. It is in Jesus' weakness that God conquers the world. Luke has put this passage together to put in close tension and contrast two stories. The story of Caesar Augustus, the king of the world, the one who by his power and might declares a decree over the entire world that you will be counted so that you can be taxed. And we are watching the entire world scurry according to the command of Caesar. That is why Joseph and a pregnant Mary are moving along dusty roads to get to Bethlehem because they want to be found obedient to Caesar who has ultimate power. But in every step that they take towards Bethlehem, they are taking a step that reminds them we are ruled, we are subjugated, we are captives to a foreign lord. And so we have in this passage a description of the power of Caesar. We are seeing, in fact, the world's gospel because Caesar was treated as the savior of the world and all of the propaganda. In fact, one of the propaganda that was published in the life of Caesar said this about him. It has haunting echoes. By sending him, Augustus, as it were, as savior for us, and those who come after us to make war to cease, to create order everywhere. And whereas the birthday of the god Augustus was the beginning of the world of the glad tidings that have come to men through him. The word glad tidings is the same as good news or gospel. Here the world is being trained that the Savior, the gospel, the peace of the earth comes in Caesar. He is the one who brings peace. But we, we recognize as we look under the veil that that power is only given to the powerful and the prestigious. 
And if that power comes through the sword, that peace comes through the sword, through subjugation and through the cross, which crushes all rebellion. Joseph and Mary, though, are learning the, the, the underside of Caesar's gospel as they move to fulfill the decree of Caesar. They are under his mighty thumb in this story. But what we are shown by Luke is that Augustus is not the true ruler. Because the careful reader will notice, the careful reader will notice that God uses the power of this world to fulfill his plan. Hundreds of years ago, through the prophet Micah, God spoke this But you, O Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Here we are told that the Savior of the world must come from Bethlehem. But as we start our story, the parents of our Savior are nowhere near Bethlehem. They have to get to Bethlehem before Jesus is born. And how does God accomplish that? By working through Augustus and his decree, he fulfills his purposes. The purpose of the census was taxation, might, and glory but God uses it to bring us the Savior and Lord of the world according to his plan. But it gets even better than this. Because God works through the power of Augustus, through the powers of the world, through the power of the cross of Caesar, to disarm the power of death. What was the cross? It wasn't jewelry in the first century. It wasn't a beautiful image that we put the American flag in front of, as I saw the other day. It was a horror. It was a a fright. It was a symbol of the ultimate power of Caesar to crush, to destroy. It was a symbol of utter agony. The word excruciating literally means out of the cross, They coined a word to explain the screams and the agony of a person on the cross because it was so horrendous. They didn't have one. Excruciating. Out of the cross. It was a symbol of Rome's power to destroy rebellion. It was a symbol of ultimate dishonor, of humiliation. This was what the cross was in the Roman Empire. And yet, the greatest masterstroke of our, of our Father, God made it a symbol of mercy, a symbol of forgiveness, a symbol of love, a symbol of life. This murderous instrument is now an instrument of life. How? Because the ultimate shock of this baby in a manger is that he really took on the weakness of our flesh so that he could die for us. Isaiah 53, 5. Actually, before I read that one, 2 Corinthians, Paul says this. He was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. It was because Jesus came in weakness that he could be crucified, that God could die in our place. The one whose fingers, as we saw last week, 
made the heavens like they were dainty things, made himself weak so that Roman nails could fasten his hands to a cross. Isaiah 53, 5. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. It was because he made himself weak and woundable that we can be healed and redeemed. It is in the weakness of Jesus that God conquers the world. Notice in this passage that we are told three times Jesus was laying in swaddling clothes, that was wrapped in swaddling clothes and laid in a manger. Luke uses that three times to make us remember it because it is a, it is a sign for us to pay attention to. And what is that sign? Because when we get through the whole story of Luke, we will come across this phrase that is hauntingly similar. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb. The one who was wrapped in swallowing cloths and laid in a manger is also wrapped in burial clothes and laid in a tomb. He was laid in a manger so that he would one day be laid in a tomb. That is the weakness that he bore to save us. And that is why the manger is good news for the weak. The good news of the kingdom is given to the powerless shepherds. Shepherds were at the very bottom of the economic and social scales. They were not in Augustus' court. But God's good news is for all people's. He confirmed to the angels that their Savior was born, one that was there to save them by giving them the testimony of the manger. It is a sign that you will see a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger, that you have a Savior. And so those shepherds, they search through Bethlehem until they find a baby laying in a manger, which proves the angel's testimony is true. They now know because of a baby in a manger, it is will be. They will be saved. So the three master strokes that bring us God's power through Jesus' weakness. Jesus' weakness is where God identifies with us, where God fulfills our righteousness, and where God conquers the world. God's power through Jesus' weakness means that God can do great things through our weakness. It is because of the gospel that my friend who dealt with mental illness was able to be vulnerable but not crushed, was able to share the calamities and the difficulties of mental illness, was able to help me understand and sympathize better with her condition and others with it. It is because the gospel confirms the power of God to her that she is able to live out her weakness and help others with weakness like hers. And so I say as we conclude this sermon, perhaps you struggle with an illness or have battled a temptation or have experienced a hard loss. The good news of the manger 
is that as you let the grace of God minister to you in those hard things, be encouraged because you are becoming like Jesus, a sympathetic counselor to others who are facing that struggle. The church is made stronger by sharing its weaknesses with one another and ministering to one another out of those weaknesses. And finally, the manger reveals that God in the gospel of Jesus is turning the world upside down. The people who set themselves to the pursuit and acquisition of worldly power, the Augustes, the Augustes of the world, they will find themselves outside of God's kingdom. They will find themselves out of God's kingdom if they do not humble themselves and repent. The true Savior of the world has come to forgive our sins and give us his righteousness. He came in the weakness of a manger. The gospel of God is where our power is as Christians. Though we should seek to bring the gospel into all places, we must remember that at the heart of the gospel is not worldly power, but a manger and a cross. The one who laid in the manger and the one who hung upon a cross. Our power is in sharing this message. As Paul reminds us, the gospel is the power of God to everyone who believes. Have you trusted in this gospel? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for Jesus. We thank you that you, who are almighty, who are omnipotent, sent your son Jesus to become human, to become weak, to become crushable, to become dependent, to become one who would lay in a manger and then lay in a tomb. Father, I pray that you would help us to cast off the pursuit of worldly power as our gospel and repent and trust in the one who made himself weak for us, that though we have been sown in weakness, we may in him be raised in power. So, Father, we pray the prayer that your Son taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.